Oh, that is crazy. It's it we we it's not playing through. Skype is uh, not Skype. Uh, talk shoes having a fun time. So that always good makes me nervous. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 310 is recorded live December 8th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we have this white stuff coming down and I'm not quite sure what it is. Joining me this week we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and yourself today? Not too bad. We also have Jim Schultz joining us today. How are you doing today, Jim? Just great. Thank you, Darren. And we also have a full house. We have Kevin Ailes joining us. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing somewhat better than I deserve, and thanks for having me on tonight. Well, you're certainly welcome. We appreciate you coming on. Appreciate everybody who's in the chat room. We had Eric tonight. And usually as a day go, as a night goes on, we'll have a few more people show up. And uh, I'd like to thank everybody who's been donating to Patreon. If you like to show and you think it's at least worth a dollar, why not head over to the Scuba Obsessed website, click on our Patreon links, and give us a little bit of a donation. We did pick up uh, new donors this last week, and we certainly appreciate it. Every little dollar helps. And tomorrow I have slated on my tasks of things to do is to finally get around to updating some of the hosting. And uh, one of my goals is figure out how to get rid of this chat room the way it is. But we'll we'll be updating hosting, and then Mac by next episode will have a new microphone, which will be will be nice. We'll have to see if anybody can can tell. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article up is scuba, not scuba, got scuba on the mind. Scientists are puzzled by puffins, uh, puffins near the Bering Sea of. Uh, are having some problems. A rash of mysterious deaths in Alaska. The carcasses have been found littering the shores of the island of St. Paul, and scientists are at a loss as to the cause. It began in October when a few dead puffins were found in the island. That in itself was not unusual, but two or three are usually found each year. Although puffins have historically migrated to warmer clients, this year the island was still populated with puffins, both dead and alive. Behavior of the puffins has also changed rather than be Startled by people and running away, the birds seem too weak to flee, in some cases even move at all. As fall progressed, the number of mysterious puffin deaths soared to the hundreds. Local conservationists who monitor the birds on the island have stepped in to investigate. They found uh, birds being completely intact, so they'd not be suffering from an unknown new predator. Sign point of climate change as a possible culprit since record high temperatures were reported. One possibility is rising sea temperatures have disrupted the food source of the puffins. Bering Sea has been off the charts warm, says Noah. Uh, we've never seen anything like this. We're in uncharted territory. Not only were the temperatures breaking records this year, but there was a third year in a row above normal temperatures for the region. These mysterious puffin deaths may only be at the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Many other species of seabirds, as well as whales, walruses, and fur seals, also live here where the deaths of the puffins could signal the first wave of coming catastrophe. Bering Sea is also home to a pollock fishing industry worth a billion dollars annually. A breakdown of the fishing industry could have tremendous financial impacts. 
I don't know if this the warm water on its own would do this. This sounds more like that there's a either a chemical or a biological component. So maybe well, if the warm if the warm water has to do with their food source, though, I mean, I, I presume they get a lot of their their food out of the water, and um, you know, that could certainly affect you know the habits of the fish. Right. So, but they they didn't did they say like it was they were starving or? They well, they just said that they were weak, weak and lethargic. Hmm. They really don't know. It, if you've not looked at a picture, you have no idea what this bird looks like. Uh, the pictorials you're looking at has really nice, bright-colored beak, and it's a fat beak. So it almost looks like a very large duck, except his beak is fat. Mm-hmm. That's what the puffins are. And the reason they're really concerned on this is they're talking, I, I saw, I went and researched this a little bit, looked at some of the dead bodies on the uh, on the beaches there, and you're talking in the hundreds. Now, when you consider, they were saying the population of those is only in the ten thousands. Right, that's a significant number of dead dead birds. Yeah, you're you're getting a, a significant number if you're in the hundreds. Yeah, because yeah, they were already endangered, from what I understood. Right, and and they're not real big. The average one is maybe pound and a half, so they're not where, very big. Where is this at? It's in Alaska. It goes right along with the next. Uh... Well, Next yeah. article at Darren Scott. I'm just wondering if it's a fallout from the Japanese nuclear leak. Well, there's no indication that the samples they have taken of pollutants, and that was their big one. Uh, little items about this bird, though. Most people don't realize they nest underground. Really? Their burrows are three to four foot deep. I found that interesting that a bird burrows itself in the ground. I really shouldn't say in the ground, more like in the side of a cliff. Now, now do puffins fly? You mean like regular birds? Yeah. Or they... Well, they say getting airborne is always a touch-and-go matter. They fly close to the water for a ways, sometimes beating the water with their wings and bouncing off the waves before they gain sufficient altitude. From land, they dive off cliffs to gain enough speed for flight. In the air, as in the water, they use their feet to help change direction. They said they feed in flocks with fish, small fish, and zooplankton for the mainstay of their diet. So they're well, a weird-looking little bird. Well, if, if plankton's a big part of their diet, then uh, you know a, a large change in the water temperature can certainly affect that. Yeah. Yeah, because they were saying that in the summer they feed predominantly on lipid-rich forage fish, including herring and sand lace. I don't know what a sand lace is. And they can catch and hold several of the more fish in their bills, and since they're small birds, they're talking about small fish. Hmm. Well, I know they're still having problems with the sea stars out there in the West Coast. That that situation hasn't seemed to have improved. Yeah. And they were saying not only in Alaska, but that's where the big die-off is. They said uh, the numbers have declined along the coast in the lower 48 due to a combination of factors, including change in abundance and distribution of forage fish, development and disturbance of their nesting colonies, includes predation, which is not the issue in Alaska, and some degree oil pollution and fishery conflicts. Entanglement in gill nets is also common. Well, in this next article we have is a large whale's unusual mortality event in the western Gulf of Alaska. Since May 2005, elevated large whale mortalities have occurred in western Gulf of Alaska, encompassing the areas around Kodiak Island and, what is that, uh, a Fognac Island? Uh, Cherkov Island, uh, Samedi Island, and the southern shoreline of Alaskan Peninsula. This event has been declared an unusual mortality event, a UME, 
While most whale carcasses have been floating and were not retrievable, also majority of carcasses were in moderate to severe decomposition with only one whale sampled to date. Reported as standard of floating whale, the most important step members of public can take to assist investigators to immediately report any sightings of live whales in distress or stranded or dead whales. Make the reporting by calling the Alaska Marine Mammal Stranded Hotline, 877-925-7773, or contact the U.S. Coast Guard on VHF Channel 16. Do not approach or touch the whales. And then they have a chart that shows some of the numbers. And in 2015, that looked to be more than 2010 to 2014 combined. And then 2016, as of, and this was a September 12th date, uh, was still pretty significant, but not nearly as bad as 2015. Yeah, but that's what that 2016. That's only for nine months. That's not the entire year yet. So yeah, yeah, you could still have a die-off. I don't know when the die-off happens uh, on the other year, but they're all in a certain amount of time. Well, I'm curious what kind of whales these are. You know, that these are the the type of whales that eat fish, or the type of whales that eat you know small microorganisms. Is, uh, you know, they're the type that eat the you know, the, the plankton and all, we might be in the same, you know, then we have a, a common food source with the puffins in the same, in a similar area. I'm looking at a picture of one, he's 62 foot long, and that's called a fin wheel, F-I-N wheel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't know what they eat, but we're going to find out real quick. Well, if it's, a, I don't know, there's a type of whale, there's a group of whales called the, the baleen whales, and those yeah. are the ones which have the, like the screen in their mouth, so yep. they can they can large quantities of water, and then they they screen out the, the the krill and the small plankton and things and all that. And you know, yet the fin whale is that type of is the baleen variety. Then we have a common food source with the puffins. Although I'm sure these folks would have thought of that kind of stuff a long time ago. So it's not like we're gonna. <laughs> no, we're not going to solve it here. But well, no, that one article that comes from the NOAA Fisheries. So they have got their finger on it, and, you know, they've not been able to come up with something, and they've been looking at this for several years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like it's just spiked, like, in the last two years, because, yeah, that, that that 2015 total, that's, like, you know, as much as all five years combined. I mean, that's that's pretty shocking in there. Yeah, the fin whale is a large baleen whale. Yeah. Okay. Is that what you were going to say, Mac? Yeah. Well, so... My guess would be that, you know, whatever, you know, the small microorganisms which make up, well, I'm just saying microorganisms, but the very small organisms which make up the, uh, you know, puffin diet and the baleen whale diet in that area, that may be being affected by the, by the warmer temperature or by pollution from Fukushima or who knows what, but I'm, I'm betting that's the culprit, so. Yeah, I was going to say, I asked them, you know, what do the whales eat, the dead whales, what are they eating? Well, and all they're, they're, saying is they're providing lots of food for uh, snails and crabs, which dine on the bacteria from them. So it's one of those they're saying there are some parts that are not necessarily good, but several species are, are gaining from their deaths by providing food to them. But it is going to be interesting if this trend continues. Well, this next article is uh, somebody who's talking about that they learned a lot from teaching scuba diving, this one's out of Florida Key News, and uh, this will probably be one that people will want to read on the website. I'm, I'm trying to find any common thread, and I'm not seeing anything. It's just a little interesting piece about somebody who's a, a scuba diving instructor. 
but I'm not getting any real bits from it. Can, can I back up for one second? Sure. I just looked at another article here. Mm-hmm. 13 sperm whales found dead with stomachs full of plastic trash. This was this year in Germany. It said uh, sperm whales washed up dead on beaches in Germany. It's like, and I'm looking at the pictures. Those are huge freaking whales. Oh, yeah. Well, the fin whale's big. The blue whale's big. The um, sperm whale is, is pretty large. Right. And they eat squid, shrimp, mm-hmm. crab, and fish. And what, it looks the like they were saying car parts, plastic car parts, bucket parts, and a fishing net. That's what they're finding in these fish or the, the whales when they cut them open. Yeah, well, fishing the sperm net. Whale, is, I, the, the sperm whale I know is not, not a baleen whale, so that might be a little bit different track. This this has got nothing to do with the whales, but they're also showing other animals that they found dead on the beach, and they have uh, taken them apart to see what's inside. And I am looking at a picture of a gull that you would not believe what they found on that guy. I, I'm going to send you a picture if I can. Sure. It's a little disgusting, but damn. If I could get the heck over there, I would. And if I get here... Nope, that didn't work. He just gave me the verbiage and not the picture. Oh. <laughs> so, my God. It's a very interesting item. If you're, You obviously couldn't see it, but you name it, and parts and pieces and plastic, anything that would float was in this bird. Hmm. Didn't look like anything that was really edible was there, and he starved to death. Oh, yeah, because you can't digest it. You can't pass it. You just... Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the plastic does not seem to be getting any better in the water. And then this this other article, a uh, person talking about uh, scuba diving. It, it it is kind of interesting. He had been a diver for uh, he'd been teaching scuba for thirty years, and uh, his last five years as an instructor. Well, the title itself says a lot. Every one of us here has mentored somebody, and by mentoring, you relearn a heck of a lot. Oh yeah. And you and as most of us are doing it seriously, we go back and try to make sure what we're teaching is the right way to do something, not the way we just do it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's always good to remember what's some of the steps, because things becoming second nature means you've been doing it for a while, but also might mean you're skipping or combining steps. So she, uh, he said, or she said, there's always a possibility of seeing something new on each dive, and each trip is an awesome opportunity to meet two people. These two elements alone make scuba diving an excellent hobby that will keep my interest no matter where scuba takes me. I think the part I always like is that aho moment. Whenever you watch them and you tell them something, and they then they go down and they realize, aha, yeah, I understand that now. Mm-hmm. That's always nice. Because they come up and then it, you can tell they learned something because, oh yeah, this just confirmed what people told me. It really is that way. Yeah, when we're, when we're out in the water, we say, you know, what, whatever you've heard about the tropics, it's not true. The water's much clearer up here in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, we tell what? them all the time. Yeah, and and those fish—that's what fish are supposed to look like. They only get the other colors when they're sick. That's right. So you want to dive with the healthy fish up here mm-hmm. that are like gray and brown and pale colored. Gray yeah. and brown. Yeah, gray brown. That's what they're supposed to be. Yeah, they're they're gray and they're brown and they're gray and they're brown. Yeah, I've and always said they have some black on them. I've said visibility is highly overrated. Yeah. Come on, Kevin, you got to get a good little plug there. <laughs> no, you guys are getting it there. <laughs> you guys are covering the bases. 
God had wanted us to dive in clear water, he would not have made mud. <laughs> and then or deep diver smarter. Yes. <laughs> uh, Deepseanews.com has an has an article that's a gentleman talking about uh, scuba diving and that he is known for being the guy who uh, sucks down the oxygen at six foot three and two hundred fifty pounds. He says he is definitely the big guy. And uh, his friend, who's 5'3 and weighs considerably less, uh, is able to get uh, two dives in a single tank of air. And and we've got people in the clubs on both ends of that extreme, and so I, I certainly can see it. And then the article goes in and starts talking about areas of the ocean where oxygen is at different levels, and he has a nice chart showing the different oxygen concentrations. Well, personally, I like having Mac and Mary Beth as my dive buddies because they always have plenty of air when I'm about to run out. <laughs> now, that's not true. I've been out there when you've been diving that, what was it, 200 cubic foot tank with a hose or a seam like that. Whenever the police come up to me and say, hey, is that guy dead over there? He hasn't been up for an hour and 10 minutes. I'd have I'm in the to- river. Well, you know. What can I say? say? Yeah. Or do you guys know that story? No, I haven't heard that one. We were diving. Jim's on the opposite side with his flag. I'm out. I am dressed. I'm sitting in the swing watching that, saying, you might want to come up in a little bit. I can see his bubbles once in a while. So I had this cop come over and says, you know, that's been over there for over an hour. I've been watching, and he hasn't come up. Are you sure he's alive? And about that time, you can see some more bubbles come up. And I said, well, he must be. He's still got air. <laughs> was, was he a little concerned that you weren't concerned? <laughs> well, it was, you know, somebody must have said something to somebody. Because I can't believe a cop is going to sit out there for an hour. Well, he knows us that much. Well, I was in my one of my favorite spots of the river and was doing well collecting bottles. And he was breathing really good because there wasn't a lot of bubbles coming up. Well, he was just breathing into the bottles he finds. So he was kind of taking <laughs> your own rebreather. <laughs> yeah, breathing off his BC. Well, and also, if you have a little bit of current, I mean, you're not necessarily going to see all the bubbles coming right above them. I mean, sometimes they, you know, pop up kind of out of your field of view or at least down the river a little bit, so... You're kind of motivated. Yeah, my, Mac did make it a point to me that I should come to the surface at least once an hour. <laughs> Wave. <laughs> so I've made it a point to do that since then. You won't find any more two-hour dives on my computer. Well, I know he wasn't doing really good because if he had been, then I saw a burst of bubbles when you said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Well, you did see some bubbles every once in a while. Did he jump out of the water and have a crock lifted over his head? No, I didn't do that well. <laughs> no. As a side note, I thought that those crocs were really big. I saw some Tuesday that were probably three times that size. I did not know they made them that large. Really? Three they times? like 50-gallon trash cans. Huh. And when we do our New Year's dive... You might be able to see the same ones. Ah. Well, let's go ahead and jump down into some potentially cool new gear. Did we forget the dragonfly? That was the one we were just talking about. 
there really wasn't a lot of detail about it. It was just him. Kind of, it's kind of a somebody who just created in the segue. He started talking about how much he he would breathe, and then he went on a while, used that as an excuse to talk about oxygen in the water. Oh, I thought they were still talking about the, the other guy. Yeah. The He's teaching talk- part. Oh, oh no, that one, I, I, we even jumped past that one. That one, uh, uh, I mean, that was a good one, too, but there's not a whole lot to talk about in the show. Yeah, yeah it was an I've been there, done that article. Yeah. Unless there are stories behind the stories, like the two girls in Japan that he taught to do flips into the side of the pool, and the princess that had the bodyguard, and then the model that he photographed and then recognized that she really was a model, but he only put a photo of her face and mask in the article. So it's like, thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Probably send them a bill for that too. Yeah, the posing fee. Yeah, professional model. That's what she makes her money at. Photographs are the property of the photographer. German scuba engineers have been using additive manufacturing and creating high-quality, lightweight, and reliable scuba light, known as the ThorRev 2.0. Relied on 3D printing. Bureau Canto IMG GmbH to produce printed parts. Canto is a German 3D printing service company with clients in the aerospace and automotive industries. In order to produce the dive light, Canto and the EOS machines, as part of the manufacturing process, worked with a polymade material PA2200. Canto 3D printed locking mechanism on the cover for the glass body of the LEDs. With its design of materials, Canto was able to create a locking system that allows for the light to be changed underwater. And I think this is something that you're gonna, we're gonna see more and more of, uh, for limited runs. If you've got a product where you're still actively developing and you're doing small batches, you know, it makes more sense to 3D print some of the parts than it does to go and in, invest in injecting and molding. Not familiar with this light, but uh, looks interesting enough. Take a look at the uh, row boy there. Yeah, isn't that kind of cool? Oh, that's a handful. You can probably take enough parts off of him to make a really nice uh, <coughs> underwater something or other. ROV, sure. Then we have a scuba chair. Seems like we've talked about this one in the past. Disabled diver invents a scuba chair, the world's first affordable self-propelled underwater wheelchair. And now it's giving me garbage. Let's see if I can get back to it. Well, that would be beautiful music. And I was trying to get a picture of the chair so I could look at it better. Does it have audio in that video they're talking yeah, it must be. That's what I was getting. The video was playing. I just dumped that. I want to see what that video shows because it looks quite interesting. I'd like to see the propulsion system for it. I don't know. I just got a lot of junk popped from mine. Yeah, it's a, some of these websites are becoming unusable. I need to make a list and say if it's on this website, then forget it. Um, the article says he recently signed a deal with a factory which will start manuf- mass manufacturing of his invention, which he calls a submarine wheelchair. Specially adapted wheelchair will go on sale for the public for about 860 pounds. He's got it listed at 70,000. Is that rubies? R-U-B? Is that what that is? Not sure. I'm not sure. 
His name is Igor Skekovich. Rubles, maybe. Sounds like a good Irish name. Yeah. I'm not looking at it. looks like a just a regular wheelchair, doesn't it? Well, that one does. Did you? I went under it, and it says, um, oh. Disabled British artist Sue Austin credited with creating the world's first self-propelled underwater wheelchair, but her invention cost, what, 7,400 pounds or 600,000 rubles? Or- right. She's the one who we had covered before. That's why this sounded familiar. Because they, they did a video. It was What's that, Mac? And under that one is the picture of the wheelchair with, it looks like, side wings on it with thrusters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that must be uh, the one that he's he's come up with. Yeah, hers was kind of a... Pl- it had a, what I liked about hers was it had the clear kind of uh, polymer, so if you it just it looked like a wheelchair flying. The oxygen tank is mounted to the back of the chair, which also f- fitted with special straps to keep the diver safely in place. I came up with the idea after the diving trip to Sea of Japan last year. Thought if I could find a way of mounting some engines in my wheelchair, I'd be able to much move much further underwater. He uh, he became disabled that nine years ago when doctors wrongly diagnosed his condition, missing a problem with one of the ver- vertebrae in his neck. Doctors feared he feared he would be left totally paralyzed, but he proved them wrong. Interesting. Well, Mac, do you have a safety story for tonight? Yes, I do. But I was also looking at something under here: underwater wheelchair to mm-hmm. put the test ahead of Paralympics. Yeah. That was another part, and you're right, Sue Austin, because I'm looking at a picture of that, and that looks like the one we talked about last year. Yeah, she that's didn't the one. Have or anything like that on her on a chair. No. no. Well, yes, actually, I do have one tonight. Actually, it's going to be a three-parter. Okay. It's going to be called situational awareness, and again, it's nothing we don't know about or have not heard about, and it's really subtle how you get into trouble. So I'm just going to basically go through my spiel, and then you guys can go ahead and update, correct, add on, okay? Okay. Situational awareness, item number one. Knowing how to live in the moment. Accidents, near misses, and safety issues are favorite popular media outlets, and there are certainly concerns for the, and they keep under constant scrutiny, the diving community. While it's never fun to think about what can go wrong when diving, it's important to study cases where things do not where things do go as planned. And in doing so, we learned that often the problems have one thing in common. Bad things happen when people are unaware of their surroundings. So that's the interesting part. Now, known variously as being in the zone or centered or focused, and everybody's heard those terms, situational awareness is a heightened state of consciousness one achieves when all the data, relevant data going on around you is processed and followed by comprehension appropriate action. So you're using your senses of sight, feel, smell, seeing, what's going on around you. It says training, though, is not enough. Preparation and practice and even checklists are not enough because divers must be constantly aware of their surroundings to be able to process what present circumstances mean and be ready to make any necessary adjustments. Now, let's consider what can happen when this is ignored. Now, I remember this incident. In August of 2006, Aboard a U.S. Coast Guard breaker, the Healy, two crew members prepare for an under-ice dive evolution for practice familiarization. Starting it out is, the officer is not current as a diver. The enlisted diver 
is not experienced in underwater or in under ice operations. They start out as they consider this oversights. They are both overweighted and both of their dry suits and BC inflators are not connected. Yet the dive proceeds. And all the final United States Coast Guard report listed more than 30 errors of all types resulting in two deaths, loss of command, court martial, and ruined careers. Okay? Often diving accidents and deaths share a common theme, loss of situational awareness. Most accidents result from a series of small variances from a safe procedure. In almost all cases, the accident could have been avoided at any point if the variance had been noticed, its implications understood, and an appropriate response implemented. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done. Or at least divers say that. Situational awareness is not unique to diving. It's been studied for decades, not only by diving institutions like Dan, but other entities like the U.S. Air Force, firefighters, industrial engineers even. And they say in more than 40 years of study, several fundamental situational awareness items have developed and combined into three levels of situational awareness. They are perception, comprehension, and projection. Now, let's see how they apply to divers. Level one, or item one, is perception. The safe diver must be aware of all relevant data. An obvious example is depth. If the sole focus of a diver is maintaining a pre-planned depth, but the critical value of gas reserve is ignored, the result is an out-of-air situation. The solution? Aggressively seek information relevant to your situation and run an internal checklist, not of items or procedures, but asking yourself, Am I aware? Am I missing anything? Does this situation feel different in any way? The second part is comprehension. Continuing the same example, depth and gas reserves are perceived from your level one, but that information can become meaningful only when placed in the proper context. It's not enough to acknowledge that you have a 1,000 PSI in your tank. To achieve comprehension, details like, where is your buddy? How far away are you from the boat? What's the current strength like? Does that give you enough for your safety stop plans? All of those are items that you should be thinking about, meaning, you know, relating to your remaining air supply and should prompt action. The other part is projection. Now that the data is comprehended, you're ready to take appropriate action. The ability to project, they said, is a mark of the experts in the fields. You've noted your remaining air supply. You comprehend its meaning in your given circumstance, meaning your depth, clarity of the water, current, buddy location job responsibilities. You comprehend its meaning to your given circumstance. So the action you take now have direction, whether that means making immediately buddy contact, initiating an ascent, or starting to swim back to the boat. Depends on how you process the data, the particular variables of your situation. And they said the thought process for achieving that situational awareness, again, we just talked about perception, comprehension, projection, conceptually clean and well-founded on empirical and experimental data, they say the steps are nonetheless a challenge to implement on a constant basis. We're all hung um, human, and with that comes that cognitive limitations. But they say with practice and a conscientious effort, divers of every level and ability can improve their dive safety. One of the awkward parts is, and everybody acknowledges, is you do everything right, but you press the limits once in a while, and you get away with it. That now becomes your new norm, and you're setting yourself so yourself up down the road. So first part is done. I'm waiting for comments. 
Certainly. I, 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 it makes sense to me. I mean, if you start accepting, uh, something, uh, shortcuts from time to time, then, uh, you know, you're, you're increasing your risk, your likelihood that things can compound and, uh, end up becoming a real problem. Yeah. It just shocked me at the example you gave though, about the, uh, the officer in the military there. I just can't imagine why they wouldn't have called that dive. I mean, doing an ice dive when you're not even a certified diver is just blows my mind. I can't see why anyone would think that would be okay. Well, the, the other guy was a diver, but remember in the Navy and, and all, they require you to make X number of dives per year, so he was not current. He's not current as a diver. Uh, they're, they're real picky about that aspect. But what gets me is overweight, if you know it, why are you doing that? And how can you go down knowing your dry suit and your BC inflators are not connected? Who did not see that? How did you not see that? What do we do? We always puff it, remember, before we go down? Right. How, how could you? But again. Well, it, it just brings up the point of the difference between, you know, shore diving and boat diving. Good point, too. You, know, you walk in from the shore and you have an issue, you're, you know, on the shore. If you're smart, you check things out before you get out over your head. Uh, boat diving, you step off the boat, your next stop is the bottom. And that's happened to a few. I, I am more conscious of my air when I'm diving deep or diving wrecks. And I try to remember, like, where's Jim at? Okay, he's in the boat because I can see the, the, the plume of his, the bottom he's kicking up. And how much air do I have? And I'm, you know, 20 feet above him. So I'm looking at my air. I know what kind of air he has. So I hope I'm doing that, you know, cognizant of what's going on around me. But are there cases where I haven't been? That's what gets you a little bit, you know. And I wonder if that counts. Remember the rebreather divers that died in that deep, deep dive? They planned a certain dive, and then they did their plan even though the situation changed. Yes. Remember? We oh, yeah. talked about that. Yeah, they were trying to do that recovery dive. Yes. And, uh, and, and sometimes I think it's just a mental thing. You know, we, we kind of all do it where you have so much invested into it that you hate to lose that investment. So you, you think that I may be able to recover this. So, you know, you, you're going to adjust a plan. Um, and then the, the thing when you're that deep under those conditions, you're not thinking clearly in the first place. So anything where you have in your mind that a variance is acceptable is just asking for a problem. Again, it, uh, to me, it's easier on the boats because I think the danger is higher there for me because I don't do it as often as I do shore diving, river, shallow water. Is You go down on one of the wrecks that we've been doing lately, and it's, you know, 100 feet, 120 feet, but you're anchored out there in the middle of Michigan or Huron. The weather was choppy when you left, and you normally would go, you know, third down, third up. You got a third, third reserve, but if you cheat a little bit and you come up and it's the weather's gotten really bad and you missed the anchor, not the anchor rope, but your the trailing line behind you. If you had extra air, if you didn't short change yourself, you got some good BC. You can always drop your weights. You got some options. If you came up and you didn't have the air, your options go down. Yeah. So you compensate for the, you know, what you anticipate when you come back up also. And I think we do that. Yeah. I'm just well, trying to figure out. When we're diving in the river, where could, what are we doing all the time that we might not be thinking about as potentially dangerous? 
the biggest one I can think about is snag hazards when you're low on air. Yes. Yeah, because you're you're in three feet of water. All I got to do is stand up. But if you get underneath a uh, tree root that's got an overhang and you you get snagged or you can't see it, you you could greatly reduce the amount of time you have available to figure your way out of that situation. Or you're tired when you're on the opposite side and mm-hmm. the current's pretty fast and you wait a little too long before you start to come back so you run out of air two-thirds of the way over when you're in the fast part of the stream. Yeah. And did you have enough to even inflate your BC or did you suck it down to it went, which we have been known to do, yeah. but not in a current like that. Yeah, well, if you have a strong current and you've, you've breathed it down a little bit quicker than normal, you that also would may indicate that you could end up coming down the objects down the river much faster than you would normally. Yeah. You, know, you got that, you know, you got another bridge coming up or very good points. So, so next week you'll have a part two. Oh yeah. And some really other good examples that are not just diving related, but again, situational awareness that lost you. I, and, and I'll, I'll use a one that they talk about as flying, skydiving, things like this. And part of it is age. Part of it is how well is your peripheral vision? How do you assimilate data? But I know in certain instances under stress, I have tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. Does anybody else have that? Especially, I mean, not just in jumping or something, but diving. Do you get so focused you don't see peripherally? I, I'm a big tunnel vision person. I think part of that, because I, I know when we did the chamber dive, that's the one thing I discovered. I, I was relieved that it was, I, I felt it was if you're going to have something happen like that, that it, it, it was just extra focus. I mean, you, you do lose some of the ability to see all your surroundings, but at least I still felt I was functional. I wasn't so narked or looped that I, I couldn't uh, handle things. But Well, Jim, you and Kevin have been doing the most deep diving lately. What do you, what do you think about situational awareness for the dives you guys have been doing? It's very, well, like, like uh, Darren said, when I did the chamber dive, I recognized that I had tunnel vision as an issue. And so I've tried hard to correct that um, or be aware of it, I guess, and do the best I can when I am diving deep. But, uh, yeah, it's real easy to get uh, caught up in what you're doing uh, and exploring and lose track of time or lose track of air or lose track of your dive buddy. And next thing you know, you're in a situation and it's deep and your mind is clouded. And, you know, when it goes bad, it goes bad fast. And just, you know, the that, that deep in the back of your mind is always a concern. At least it is for me. So... You know, when things start to happen, it's like, okay, you got to react. I won't say differently, but you've got to stop and look at all the factors around you. Uh, your best air source may not be the surface. And so that you got to consider. Kevin, you got any thoughts, sir? Well, I know when I did the chamber dive, uh, what came to my attention was that uh, when I get, get a little narked, um, I tend to be uh, overconfident. Um, I did notice some tunnel vision. I noticed the tunnel vision to some, you know, somewhat when I've been diving deep as well. But I just make a real point of uh, 
you know, not doing anything out of my diet plan, not doing anything um, very aggressive. I, I know what I am normally comfortable with doing as far as recs, and I, I have found myself at times like, yeah, I can penetrate this baby from stern to bow if I want to. Let's do it. Like, no, oh, wow. wait a second. How, how deep am I? Nah, not a good idea. That, that, that's that, that's the, the narcosis talking right there. So um, I, I'm very much aware of how narcosis affects me. And, uh, you know, I very much temper my uh, my actions according to it. So, Well, I, I know I dive different when I'm doing shallow in the river, especially, or shallow even like at Papa or something, as I do any time I'm doing a boat dive or a deep dive. My mindset is totally different. And I think part of that is when we're doing solo, even on a deeper dive, I think I'm more conscious of what's going on, but I sure like my extra air, my extra regulator that I know is working before I go down. But a question, do you know what video surprise is? I made the term up, so you probably don't. But if I said video surprise, what do you think I'm talking about? When you go back and look at the video from the dive, you're surprised to see something that you didn't see or didn't remember seeing when you were on the dive. Absolutely. I mean, it's right in front of you, and you get up and say, how did I miss that? Yeah. Why didn't I pick that bottle up? I get that on the surface. (laughs) I don't need to go diving for that. Yeah, and I don't mean something peripheral off to the right and left because the camera will pick up stuff you just don't see. But, right. I mean, you went right over it, and you recognize certain items, but some items it's like, I don't remember that. Well, the, thing I get, the, the other piece, Mac, is I find it more so on deeper dives. That's what I'm saying, on deeper. Wait, yeah, I'll, I'll do a deeper dive, and I'll come back and say, you know, I remember seeing that, but if you had asked me to describe my dive, I would have forgotten it. But isn't that yeah. some of the fun of diving? Is that these deeper wrecks, you can dive them 10 times and still find something new doing the well, same dive plan? Well, it is, it's cool, but it's just it's a little disconcerting, though, when you were down there and, and you don't recall seeing it. I know right where you're at, Jim. I mean, when I was at the bottom of the Ann Arbor there, um, you know, I went down to the, to the bottom there, and I'm looking like, I do recall seeing like, yeah, there's some stuff down here that's kind of cool. I wish I had time to, to inspect it. But I was, I was a little deeper than I wanted to be, so I came back up. But then looking back at the video, I didn't recall that there's a there's a huge debris field at the bottom down there, which I just recalled only seeing just a couple objects out of, not, not the entire field down there. So, And the second item, again, now everybody says nitrox doesn't make a lot of difference, blah, 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 other than your deco and all this. I don't care what they say. Maybe it's the placebo effect. I think I do better when I'm on, you know, than enriched than I am when I'm not. I, I think I feel better. I think I see better. Are you guys getting the same effect, or is that a placebo just for me? It's not just you. Because I come up, and I feel a heck of a lot better, and I got more energy on repetitive dives. I I feel better, but I keep telling myself it's just a placebo effect because it just it doesn't, to me – make sense of why that would be the case but i i'm the same way the anytime i dive nitrox i always feel like i've got a little bit of extra energy like a little caffeine energy yeah. boost yeah i i do feel better I, I don't have that you know kind of hungover feeling as much 
after I've been diving nitrox. No, but using nitrox doesn't really, it only has very minimal effect on, on your narcosis, I guess. Uh, you know, it only changes it by just a few feet, so you can't expect to be using, you know, use nitrox to ward off the symptoms of narcosis. And, and my personally, I never use it. I always use it on the air table. So I don't do that for the extra time. I use it for protecting factor because I'm a little older. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it, I, I enjoy using it. I feel better when I do. I'm going to use it, and I'm going to pay the difference. But that video yeah, surprise I, is always an interesting one to me. I didn't see something. It's like, why didn't I see it? I'm sure our listeners, whenever they go through this, are going to be able to think, well, I've sort of done that. I'd like to hear if somebody does and have your yeah. feedback. Yeah, drop us a line. You can always leave us a message. Uh, the show at scubaobsessed.com, and that will get back to us. Also, our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed, or you can comment to us on Twitter at scubaobsessed. Uh, Kevin, do you have a featured shipwreck for the week? Yes, I do. Um, you know, I've been, I'm going to start taking notes on which uh, wrecks we've done for this because uh, – Frankly, my mind gets a little blurred because we have so many wrecks we talk about, and then we have the featured wreck. And um, so, forgive me if I do any repeats on here, but I don't think that I'm quite comfortable. No, we, we we never repeat anything like bad jokes or stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Well. In 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 that in the spirit of that tradition, um, the featured wreck of the week is actually a, a very simple wreck to dive. Um, we're going to talk about the Francisco Morazan, uh, which is on the south shore, south shore of South Manitou Island. Uh, one nice thing about this dive is it's actually a twofer. Uh, when you dive the Morazan, you also dive the Walter Frost because they are side by side. Actually, the Morazan kind of unfortunately skidded right over the frost on its way to, to its grounding. Um, not sure how much damage it did to the frost, but like I say, you do one, you do them both. Um, I pasted in a number of links into the chat room regarding the uh, Francisco Morazan here. Um, this is a relatively recent one, and it's unique in that it's one of the few which actually still stick out of the water. Uh, this one ran aground on a reef there, uh, south side of South Manitou in 1960. Uh, some versions say it was during a blizzard. Some say it was during a fog. Uh, in any event, it was a whiteout of one type or another. Um, ship ran aground, and captain was able to stay in contact with the Coast Guard. There were no lives lost on this one. Everyone, everyone got off the boat safely. Um, there's been some speculation about it being an intentional scuttle. There's well, there's a big conspiracy out there claiming that uh, the um, captain was told if he couldn't get to the uh, locks in time, because it was a saltwater boat, if he couldn't get to the locks in time to uh, ditch it someplace where no one was going to get hurt, and, that, and, he, and that's what he did, but you know, you're always going to have conspiracy theories about about these. We don't know. Captain was quite young. Uh, he's only 24 years old. Um, gambling with late-season Great Lakes weather, but wanting to make one last trip before winter, the Francisco Morazan left Chicago November 27, 1960. Steel-hauled Liberian freighter was bound for Holland. Uh, we're talking Holland and the Netherlands. Via the St. Lawrence Seaway, loaded with 940 tons of general cargo. 24-year-old Captain Eduardo Trevizes and a multinational crew of 13 men sailed the ship. Captain Trevizes had five years of sailing experience and was a graduate of the Greek Navy School. 
Francisco Morazan was his first command. Captain's wife and traveling companion Anastasia, age 29, who was pregnant with her second child, was also aboard. Um, I'm giving you this information here from uh, nps.gov. I do have a link pasted in the chat room. Um, basically, what, what, what they're telling you is uh, what you see of the Morazan from the island. Um, I know when I dove it, I dove it from a boat, took my boat from the mainland, took it, went out there. Um, I believe there are some charters in the area, but you're looking at quite a ways off the mainland, so it's, it's about nine miles offshore. Uh, it is a really cool dive, though. There's much to see underwater, which you can't see from the surface. Um, you can get right up close to the boat without really upsetting the comorants because the, uh, the ship is full, is full of these fish-eating birds, which do not like trespassers. It's not recommended that you actually board the ship because the birds get very aggressive and they don't, like I say, they, they will not make you feel welcome. Um, but in any event, uh, you know, if you can get out there, it's a nice, easy, shallow dive. Maximum depth, I'm going to say about 15 feet. Um, so you're going to have a lot of bottom time on this one here. Great deal of metal, um, you know, the pictures all show the Morazan with the bow twisted off and the whole front deck separated there. Well, that whole bow and deck are underwater. They're all there, uh, along with a lot of machinery and a um, great deal of just indiscernible broken metal and gears and ladders and things down there. Uh, it is a very, very cool, easy dive, beginner dive. Uh, water tends to be kind of cold up there, so make sure you've got your 7 mil wetsuit. Um Actually, a dry suit would be advisable at some times of the year, but uh, if you get a chance, check it out. Very cool dive. Now, looking at that preserve there, it looks like there's a lot of shallow shipwrecks. Yeah, the uh, Manitou Passage right there around um, South Manitou Island, there are a number of them in the area. Um, some really cool, there's a cool schooner in there, the uh, Three Brothers. Uh, well, let's see, you've got you know quite a few easy shallow ones. And then there are some pretty deep ones out there as well. Hmm. This this needs to be on my list for this next year. Find up there because Leland's great. I mean, this is a great location. If if you've got a significant other who doesn't scuba dive, uh, yeah, they can head up to Leland, and there's some excellent shopping up there. I mean, uh, beautiful area of the of the state. Yeah, there's there's two little towns up there, Glen Arbor and Glen Haven, and one of them is actually a reconstructed. Um, I don't know, turn of the century town there with kind of a, you know, kind of like a little miniature Mackinac Island kind of venue there. Um, I know there's also a way, uh, a pier out there right off the shore of, I believe it's Glen Haven. Yeah, Glen Haven is the tourist uh, Mackinac Island style town. Uh, Glen Arbor is the actual modern style town, which it's, you know, still very touristy there, um, but it's, you know, not. You know the, the, the quaint shops that you find in, in, in Glen Haven. Like uh, I know, I know that there's, there's a pier out there you can dive. There's a lot of artifacts and things. Um, they are protected, so it's not a place for grubbing. Oh uh, darn! Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that, that's what they say anyway. You know, uh, I'm not quite sure what the the regulations are that protect it, but I've seen it written that it's protected. But I don't know. You guys can check and then make your own call on that stuff. So. Well, Sounds cool. like a nice dive to me. Pardon? Sounds like a nice dive. Shallow, plenty to see. That's the kind of stuff you like. Yeah, it's you know, the only 
downside to it is it's, it's a ways offshore. You're talking about nine miles offshore. Um, I can tell you the boat. There's only one boat launch in the area that puts you on the big water, uh, and it's it'll it'll accommodate a large boat. I've seen people putting you know 27 footers in on that boat launch, but it's 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 a metal ramp, which is a seasonal deal, I'm sure, right on the shoreline. And depending upon the wind direction, it can be a real bear to get your boat back on that trailer. Uh, you know, I've done it a couple times. Um, you know, definitely something for the experience. Of course, I wouldn't think that anyone unexperienced should be taking their boat that kind of distance offshore anyway. Um, I think there's some charters in the area. Not at least from the details, you know, I'd say if you're not bringing your own home, well, no matter what, do your homework before you go. You know, plan it out thoroughly. Yeah, I'm looking at the website, seeing if there's any links to any charters. Uh, I'm, I probably need to do a little bit more looking. But excellent, a good location. And it's 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 a, a twofer. You know, the Walter Frost is right next to it. Uh, Walter Frost was a wooden-hulled steamer. Um which was mostly salvaged. The uh, the frame and some metal is still down there. Um, I think the chines are laying down. It's kind of splayed open. The uh, engine is taken off of it. You know, it went. It ran aground out there in the uh, in the fall and the winter ice did it in, so it wasn't. They couldn't save the ship in the spring, and they just pulled the boilers off of it and let it go. Now, and, and great visibility these... too. But, yeah. Go ahead. Great visibility too. Both, I've been up there twice, and both times the visibility was thirty foot plus. With these being so shallow, is there a risk that uh, different times of the year they may be covered under sand? No, well, I doubt. It. I mean, the, the, the Morazon certainly not. I mean, the Morazon sticks out of the water by thirty feet, um, so that that's not going to be sticking out of the sand. The uh, the frost, you know, the, the the bottom changes quite a bit. You know, we we see that with the shallow wrecks, so. The frost might get buried at some point. I know the frost. You can you can see both of them from Google Earth. Uh, if you go to Google Earth and, and you know find South Manitou Island and go to the south to the southern edge of it, there. Uh, in fact, there'll, there'll be a lot of pictures, you know, links on Google Earth to different pictures of people taken of it there. But you will see just offshore from the Morazon, you know, probably 200 feet to the south, uh, lies the frost, and you you can see the ribs and the keel right there you know from from the overhead shot yeah eric's asking if you can dive these from the shore i i'm quite confident you could dive them from the shore of south manitou island the the issue is going to be getting your gear there because uh there's a ferry which takes you back and forth to the uh to the island but it's a pretty good hike although i, I guess the hike around the island i'm reading here is two and a half miles so, yeah, um, you know, I guess it might only be like a mile then to haul your gear there. I I, I, I checked the trails out to make sure. I know that the uh, terrain is pretty hilly back there, <clears throat> and I've heard that the uh, oh the the chipmunks are pretty aggressive. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. so ag- aggressive chipmunks and birds. It sounds like a Alfred Hitchcock movie in the making. <laughs> Yeah, could very well be. Could very well be. Yeah, I had some friends that did some backpack camping on that island and had a real problem with uh, chipmunks coming coming after their food. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, this uh, map on the MichiganPreserves.org website does show a couple camping locations there, along with a lighthouse. 
Yeah, so it, I I didn't I haven't done it that way, but it it might it may be feasible to I know the ferry goes out a couple times a day to, to take your gear on the ferry and hike around and do it from the shore. That's a good question, Eric. I mean, it's um, I think for someone who, who's healthy and robust, that shouldn't be a problem at all, really. But you know, you might you might be carrying your tanks across a dune or something there. So yeah, and then and then he's saying it looks like uh, Scuba North goes there. Let's take a look and see if that link is. He pasted. I believe there. there's a dive shop on. Um, yeah, what's the island there? Manitou, uh, South Manitou. Oh, okay. oh, uh, the north no. one. No, I think he's up at Beaver. Okay. Yeah, the the one that he pasted in there is Scuba North, and that's based out of Traverse City, Michigan. So they must uh, take a a trip down that way then. Yeah, I, I've been out there twice, and, uh, you know, a lot to see down there. You know, I mean, you can you can go out there on an 80 and be out there for an hour and a half, you know, and see and see two wrecks on, on one dive and see everything there. Um, you know, the frost has got a little bit of plumbing down there. I think it's got the drive shaft. Um, no, no propeller, but, but, but the drive shaft is there. Boilers are gone. Um, you know, you can make out, you know, the shape of the ship and the ribs and the keel and all that. Um, but, you know, if you can get out there, very worthwhile dives, great visibility. Um, you know, not recommended to go on board the Morazon. You actually could if you wanted to, um, but it it stinks. Uh, it's, you know, basically covered in, in, in bird poop. And uh, <laughs> you, you don't want to be downwind of it, I can tell you that. Um, you know, could you board it? People do board it. You know, it's not recommended, but, you know. Um, it's very, very possible. So, what are the chances you're going to have to actually go on, to actually go on board a shipwreck? So, I mean, very cool. Yeah, I think it's on my list for this next year. Um, if, it, as long as we got 72 weekends in the summer, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can make them all. Okay. Good luck with that. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, Jim, now you, do you have a dive hack you want to talk about? I do have a dive hack. It's something I'd like to start sharing, and it's just uh, tricks that other divers have taught me that make life in diving so much easier. And tonight's dive hack is taking a, we call it a blind spot mirror. It's a convex, I always get concave and convex little. I always get concave and convex mixed up until I remembered to go into a cave. Mm-hmm. So that's a curved-in mirror, which is not what you want. You want a convex mirror, which is curved out, often called a blind spot mirror. And if you find one about an inch and a half or two inches large with some double-stick tape or you put some Velcro on it, it's a great addition to the back of your console or your compass, or any other part of your dive gear that you can kind of stretch away, look in the mirror, and you can basically look behind you. Uh, We know how difficult it is to turn around or, you know, how many times have you been swimming along and your buddy is directly above you or slightly behind you and off to the side where the only way you can see them is to do a barrel roll. Well, with this mirror, you just pull it out, take a quick look, and you can 
not only see your own hoses, regulators, check for bubbles, check for leaks, uh, but you can also use it to spot your buddy uh, if they're not swimming close by you. I've used it quite a bit, and it's just a great trick, simple, cheap, inexpensive way to add something to your dive gear that can make make getting you untangled from some fishing line or something else much easier to do instead of having to take your gear off if you get your first stage hung up in something you can often use your mirror to see exactly what you're doing back there i like that that's a nice one i remember we dove the rockaway once and you took some video and photos uh and you had that in the shot and i think that made an uh a little bit more dramatic picture just because you not only had the image of what was being shot, but you also had the reflection of what was in the mirror. Mm. And it's so much easier to put your makeup on in the water when you have it. Yes. <laughs> haven't tried that yet, but, you know, we, we uh, will. You, you had to use that ma- that waterproof mascara, though. Yeah. Well, we've just, there's a bunch of simple hacks that people have talked about. You know, we, we've used a bunch of them here. Uh, baby shampoo. You know, putting baby shampoo in your mask instead of defog. Uh, putting baby shampoo on the wrist seals and ankle seals of your wetsuit to slide your hands through. Putting it on the back of your hands or inside your gloves when you go to put your gloves on. I mean, it's a fantastic lubricant. It cleans the wetsuit. It doesn't smell. It's not going to hurt you if it gets in your eyes. Um, it's biodegradable. And it's just a great lubricant, you know, for anything wet. So, you know, hacks like that that we can share with other divers that, you know, things you might not have thought about, but great tricks and tips uh, from other divers. So if you've got some you'd like us to share, send them into the show. We'll make sure you get credit for it. And uh, we really would appreciate, you know, sharing those tips. And it's not too bad if they use too much of that soap and stuff because, on the surface, we can see you because we can just follow your bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the nice thing about that is that's a, the no more tears. I I uh, attempted on uh, my, my mother-in-law makes homemade soap, and uh, I tried some of hers, and, and that will eat your eyeball. <laughs> it's like it will go in one eye, eat your brain, and come out your ear. So the 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 baby shampoo does not do that, which is a which is a good thing. Yeah, those homemade soaps with lye in them not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, w- when they sizzle, I I kind of figured that was my warning sign. Well, thank you. That is an that is an excellent hack, um, and that is something I got to figure out. Now, where do you mount the the mirror? Is it does it go on? A particular piece of equipment just i've used a couple different ones uh i've got in my one set of gear i've got a retractable compass and so i put it on the retractor right by the compass so i can pull it out get my compass heading or pull the mirror out you know move it around and see exactly where it's at on some other gear i've put it on the back of my console mm-hmm. you know but you want something where you can get out in front of you move it up you know, about shoulder high and point it back so you can see over your shoulder, check out your gear, check out your regulators, and see who's who's around you. That's not a bad idea also for a surface item. Right. If you have the mirror, you can use that to help, you You know, with the sun. With signaling. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. another one. Yeah, yeah, so it can do, double as a, a safety item. 
I've seen them on the back of the console, like you were saying, Jim. Yeah, very nice. Well, anybody get any dives in this last week? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Where'd you get? Well, we're I'm out there looking for um, another place for the New Year's dive, and I obviously we don't know if we're going to have hard water or not. If it stays like it is now, we could have some hard water. Uh, one of the prerequisites we were looking at, if we had visibility, would be nice. No current would be nice, but we can't seem to have both of them together. So one of the places I went and dove, uh, a lady invited us to go to Hidden Acres. She's got a big, basically a pond uh, with koi fish that are about two feet. And I'll tell you now that even when she was throwing the food out and they had a little feeding frenzy, and you got about 23, 24 that I counted fish that are two feet plus, you wonder, I wonder what they can do when I get in the water. Well, what they do is they think, shark! And <laughs> I never saw a freaking fish down there. Nah, we're just going to put a bunch of peanut butter on your on your wet, on your your dry suit, man. They'll be following you around like piranha. Yeah. Yeah, on my blind side, I need that mirror. <laughs> but uh, where we dove was uh, the ladies' up area, and we will probably do that one based on weather. If we don't have tons of snow, it's a little bit of a drive down there, but we will have the toy box. Uh, she does have a big pole with some lights up there also. And once I get the final approval, I'll post a picture so you guys have an idea what the area looks like. It was a uh, dugout area near the river. It is clay bottom, but except on the sides where they poured rocks because she has a waterfall, they have a covered bridge out there. The husband actually built a mine shaft, a mine. So when you're looking at it, like, is there a mine over there? Well, yeah. Uh, one of the plumes for water he made, that was for when their kids were little. They'd actually climb up on the hill and get on that plume, and that was their slide into the pond. Nice. He did a very nice job. Uh, she has that, that house it looks like a barn, but you go in, and it's not a barn. It puts Cracker Barrel to shame. Everything <laughs> she has in that's antique. Wow. And you start going up to it, and you see all these crocs, hutches and bottles in the, in the keepers, and you're saying... Oh, I know this. Oh, I've seen parts of this. And everything on the walls, you can start looking at and say, hey, I've seen broken parts of this in the river. Oh, that huge tree saw, you know, the double man. Yes. Now, I've seen, you know, it was really ed- educational to look at the stuff she had in her house. That was very nice of her to invite us in to look around. But the porch itself has tons of that. Like you're talking not dead eyes, but blocks and pulleys and stuff you see on boats and ships all uh-huh. around the place. It was a very nice place, and um, I think you'll enjoy it. Obviously, we're not going to have a lot of visits because once you go out there, and it's a nice flat entry. That's the other nice part about this. You don't have to go down the embankment to get to any place. Uh, if we went to Barron Lake, you got that large hill to go up and down. Pain in the butt. So I'll post a picture when we get approval, then you'll let me know if we're going to be there or not. And yeah. I'm going to try to get another dive out there for people who might want to dive it before then. Well, I may be interested in, in one of the times we dive it before then. My The challenge I have is that last year it was my daughter's birthday, and I checked with her, and I think it's still going to be her birthday this year. All I say is teach her to dive. <laughs> bring, her, bring her along. Yeah, get her well, involved. I, I need to convince her because she's decided she was, this is her senior year in high school. And she wants to go uh, to medical school. 
So I got to somehow convince her that diving is somehow medically related. Or she could just take a kayak and paddle out there with her dad, <clears throat> and it would be a highlight of her senior year in high school. I spent New Year's on a kayak with my dad diving, and I was in the kayak being a safety person. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's going to work. Maybe a different weekend, but not that weekend. She's already got this big elaborate plans of everybody being over at the house. So, not unfortunately, not going to work out for me. <laughs> but the water was getting chilly. It was 38 to 40, and that was last, well, that was Tuesday. <clears throat> and I suspect we've got skim ice on it now. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting, the, it's, it's getting a little chilly and, I, I was driving home in the car, and I could tell I don't have my winter skin on yet because I, I, I felt like I said, gosh, it must it's really cold. It must be about 18 degrees, and I look at the, the temperature, and it's 28. <laughs> so that's tropical. I don't know about tropical. I was 25 around here today. Well, at least we know the water won't be any colder than 32. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. At least not local. Except for, I, I have had a reading below 32 in the river with flowing water. So I, I always like to mentally think if the water stopped moving, it would freeze to a brick. But it does it slow. Um, I always take my, my camera down. Now I'm always looking to get a copy of or some of that frazzle ice for me. I've seen it once. I would love to get a picture of it. Oh, that would be great to have a video. I think that you could, you could do a, that would almost be like an art piece. Yeah. And, the St. Joe River has visibility still. Really? So, so when you say visibility, it's beyond, it's more than two inches. Well, yeah, three feet, so, you know, well, something yeah, like that. Well, that's pretty good. Well, you know, as long as the current isn't isn't bad there, just my concern is that, you know, I've seen in the past, some of, well, like well, last year, you know, we had some rather new divers out there for the uh, New Year's dive. And when you put all those factors in of, of current Cold water, very cold water, poor visibility. Uh, I'm concerned about how, you know, some of the newer divers being overwhelmed by it, or even some of us more veteran divers, you know. It's, uh, you know, just not good to have that many uh, variables stacked up against you like that. And generally, we don't go into the river, per se, when we do that. It's like either in Horrible Basin, where it's six feet deep, uh-huh. until you get out towards the riverside, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm good with that with that pond you're talking about. That that, that sounds quite intriguing. Uh, like I said, when I post a picture, you got you get a better feel for it, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a nice dive, and it's right up from Maramont, so it, well maybe what a mile and a half from Maramont, and everybody's familiar with that. So, yeah, and we'll be at Larry's, bugging on down and around, so it wouldn't be a bad drive. Excellent. Uh, anybody else get a dive in? Well, Mac and I got one in last week. I didn't get in this week, but last week we did. We got, we got that one in last week, too. That, oh, well, tell us about that one, Jim. How'd that one go? Uh, we went above the dam into the river, and Karen was there with us, so the three of us got in the water. Um, Mac had the longest bottom time and came up with the best goodies, but uh, I got a... Oh, a couple bottles that were worth bringing up, and it was an area of the river I hadn't been in before. But uh, nothing fancy, just checking around the the shoreline for bottles and trash, and came up with some bottles. 
The difference is the bottom has changed there, and it had a silt layer that was you had good vis till you got in. And if you're going upstream, you could see. But once you touch that, that silt layer was probably three inches. You hit it, and it's poof, instant dark. Really, really, yeah, really, really light silt. But Very. when you get in and you stay, you're, you're talking four or five feet, not even that, towards the embankment, under those trees down towards the end, that is where I started finding stuff. And I was finding a lot of broken bottles, uh, the ones with the little, you know how it goes up to a syrup bottle where you got the little hook or the little round doodad you can put your finger in? Mm-hmm. I find a lot of those broken tops of the heads on. And uh, those metal parts, I don't know if that was a motorcycle parts and pieces or what, but once you start, you know, you went out there and digging, it was nice to have a, a, a river stick for that part so you can hear that clink or, or glass sound. Mm-hmm. And you were doing it braille. But uh, water wasn't bad. And again, if you were out and ahead of the the flock, you know, weren't too bad. There was some tree limbs and, you know, like the Christmas trees out in the middle, in the water. You walk into that and that's a little deserting. And what was the temperature on that dive, Jim? Do you remember? Mid-40s. So in the last two weeks, temperature is definitely dropping. Yep, it is definitely getting that time of the year. We are entering the snow season. My kids are... They, they said that they visited a website and they said it was 99% chance they were going to have a snow day tomorrow. I'm not sure if I agree with them, but it is certainly the getting to be the beginning of our winter season. And I got my shovels out, my snowblower recharged, meaning it starts, and my generator's gassed up. Uh, well, for me, I, I still have to find my, my winter clothes. I, you know, I've, I've got a hat. I think I've got that in the car in a, in the gloves, but it usually takes me till about July or August to finally get them out of the car, and uh, they need to find their way back in there really rapidly. I have a winter box. I thought everybody did that up here. I I use my stuff. I don't have. It doesn't have time to get in a box. <laughs> so once no, this I this is stuff just in case. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wear it. Right. The motto is dress to survive, not to arrive. That's what I try to convince my kids. My daughter. This is their second winter driving and it's awful hard you know they, they still want to go outside of the house without a coat on that's what i'm saying you drive a mile from here you've got like today 20 mile an hour winds at 25 degrees that one mile is going to hurt yeah and and where i live i live in the way where if you if you're coming to my house from in town and you get in your car and you drive uh, if you haven't been to my house before about a third of the way there you get in the phone call me and say am i there yet and it's like no you have just started so there are spots where houses are nearly a mile apart. And if you're in between one of those and something happens and you don't have a cell phone and somebody's not going to pick you up, that's quite a walk in, you know, sub-zero weather when it starts to really get cold and snowy. Yeah, people don't, don't have coats. They don't have shoes. They, they, they are appropriate for walking. They don't have hats. And this time of year, you just need to be prepared just like you are underwater. You need to be ready for this winter. Well, we'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air again another season. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, they got a program constantly on the air playing, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Their website is www.renoviolaoutdoors.com, and there's also an app. You can search WRVO Radio Network on 
uh, iTunes or Google Play, and they'll get you to the app, and you can listen along. And we're on at least a couple times a week on the radio network, so we appreciate them for putting us on the air. Mac, you have anything you want to plug? Uh, no, not right now. I don't. Nope. Uh, now, this is our off month for the dive club, isn't it? Yeah, no club meeting. I'll put out a notice, though, for instructions on the gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I'm looking for is I know that some people may be going to the quarry on New Year's Day. I haven't seen if SAS is going to do one at Gull Lake, a daytime, you know, high noon. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to try to do uh, both the night dive and then do a day dive. Yeah, I had done a day dive in the past. You know, my, my daughter's usually sleeping in, so I could skate out for that, but I haven't haven't made any plans yet for this year. Kevin, do Kevin, you have any... Are you aware of anybody doing a New Year's dive? You know, since, um, what's his name from Holland had, had stopped doing it, I, I haven't really seen anything for New Year's Day like there had been. Yeah, other than SAS. I'm not even getting a SAS one. I must not be on their mailing list anymore. I'm on their mailing list, and I... I haven't seen one doing one. I don't know. Generally, is a pickup. Kevin, did you have anything you want to plug? Uh, just the regular. Uh, support your local libraries. Support your local dive shops. Uh, we all want to get that bargain on the line, but, the, but that bargain online is not going to fill, fill your scuba tanks. How about you, Jim? You got anything you want to plug? Nope. Now, not a thing. Now, how is the nitrox going down there? I noticed that Wolf's had added that. I was wondering if that's starting to pick up any steam. Oh, I filled my tanks a few times. <laughs> and you've um, been very nice to me on that, too. Yeah. Well, we had to I've get got, a few samples out there. I've got some fills on it. Yeah. Well, excellent. So I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who I have dove nitrox a lot of times. I've taken the class, but I don't have the little card. So I'm working with Dave on getting that remedied. So I'll be... I'll be on the official good guy list for being able to get nitrox. But uh, as much as I don't believe that it has any physical values beyond what the books say, I do prefer to dive it when I have the opportunity. So that will be something that I'll be, I'll be partaking in as well. Well, I think we are coming to that time of the show. Are you gentlemen ready? I'm sitting down anyway. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the gentleman, but I am. <laughs> Let's get, let's get it over with. Okay. Well, this is another one from Rod. So uh, after making a few strategic edits to make sure that it was appropriate for whatever networks would happen without melting any phones or other devices. So thank you, Rod. And, and once again, thank all our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. It, we certainly appreciate the support. Uh, visit our website, www.scubobsess.com. Click on the Patreon link, and you know if you can give us a little bit uh, you know whatever the cost of a cup of coffee is would certainly help us out on their way to get married a young diving couple's involved with a fatal car accident the couple finds themselves sitting outside the pearly gates waiting for saint peter's to process them into heaven while waiting they start to wonder if they can get married in heaven when saint peter shows up they immediately ask him saint peter replies i don't know this is the first time anyone's asked let me go find out he leaves the couple sat and waited for saint peter to return but he never did. Nine weeks later, the couple were still waiting. They started to wonder if things didn't work out, could they get a divorce in heaven? Another month later, St. Peter finally returns looking somewhat bedraggled. Yes, he informs the customer, the couple, you can get married in heaven. Awesome. The couple responds enthusiastically, but we're just wondering if things don't work out. Can we also get a divorce in heaven? 
St. Peter's face suddenly turns red with anger. He slams his clipboard to the ground, frightened the couple asks, What's wrong? Oh, come on, says St. Peter. It took me three months to find a priest up here. Do you have any idea how long it'll take me to find a lawyer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like they might be in a little short supply there. I ain't touching that one. <laughs> we, 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 we may need the services of somebody who's uh, maybe not too plentiful up there. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have fun with it. And don't hurt any lawyers. No matter how much you want to, don't hurt any lawyers. No promises. tell the difference between a dead lawyer and a dead snake in front of the road, don't you? No, what's that? There's skid marks next to the snake. (laughs) Oh,